uh, it was about, uh, I was trying to think back, I think it was about 12 years ago. I remember uh, because Asher was a baby, I used to watch a show uh, a lot. It was one of my favorite shows on TV. And I remember, it's funny the things you remember, but I remember when he was a newborn watching lots of them on, on I think Netflix was a new thing at the time. But uh, it was called The West Wing. If you've ever seen the show The West Wing, it's, it's a, you could probably guess even if you've never seen it. Uh, it's about the White House. Uh, it took place and it was the president and all his people. And uh, uh, I liked the show because uh, it was really well acted and really, really well written. A lot of really clever, fast dialogue in it. And so I always enjoyed the show. But one of the things I liked about it is, is they would present different arguments, um, political, moral, kind of all these things. And they kind of show it from different sides. And, and like any television show on TV, I would watch it and I'd like to hear those arguments and think about it. But I'd find myself kind of arguing with the characters on the show. Like, oh, I don't fully agree with that. And I don't agree with that. And uh, but I, I always enjoyed watching it, even partly just for that. And, and to those ends, I remember one episode in particular, and I went back and just watched the scene from it a couple times this week. But there was this episode in which um, kind of a, a coarse uh, radio show host that the president didn't like at all had come into the White House and was in this room with all these people. And uh, his staff was telling him they were going to be there and he was not happy about it and didn't really like this person. Um, and, of course, they showed uh, the way they presented the radio host on, on the TV show is they were very uh, fundamental Christian and they were uh, not gracious and not kind and kind of ugly and used the Bible to beat people up. And, and the president on the show was a, a devout Catholic and he didn't like that and he was really upset. And so the scene unfolds that he comes into this room and all the people's there and he sees this lady he doesn't like. And he starts to have this dialogue with her. And, of course, she quotes um, some scripture to him and says some things. And he goes, oh, you're quoting for me. And she quotes from Leviticus. And he goes, oh, since you quoted that, he's like, I've got some questions for you. Right. So she quotes Leviticus to him and he kind of this string. And so this is kind of uh, paraphrasing here what he says. But he turns to her and he says, um, my chief of staff uh, works on the Sabbath and then. Uh, tells us that we all should be working on the Sabbath. So should I stone him myself or should I have the police do it? And then he says, um, uh, you're not supposed to touch the skin of a dead animal, but a lot of people here in Washington love football. And how does that work? Like if they're playing football and they're touching the skin of a dead pig, how does that work? Is it OK if they then wear gloves? Can we still play football? Or he says, my brother is a farmer and he has planted uh, two crops side by side that are different uh, I'm now supposed to stone him. Do I need to get the whole town there or can I just do it myself? And then he ends with, he says, my mother likes to wear clothes of two different fabrics. She too is supposed to be stoned, but would it be okay if I just burned her instead of stoning her for doing so? And in the scene, the lady kind of sits there dumbfounded and doesn't know what to say. And it's this back and forth. But what is presented in that scene, in that show, is an argument that I've heard quite a bit. Maybe you've heard it before. We read the Old Testament, we read books like Leviticus that we're going to look at this morning, and it says a lot of those things. There's uh, punitive punishments for adultery and working on the Sabbath and all these different things. And you read that and you can read that Bible. And I've, at, I've actually had people ask me or, or maybe uh, an accusation. You don't take the Bible seriously. It, it says right there in Leviticus, if someone in your midst commits adultery, you take them outside and you stone them. You don't do that in your church. You don't take the Bible seriously at all. There's all these things that it says that we just kind of leave out. And so my question to you this morning is we're going to look at Leviticus together. Is that true? 
the Bible says these things, are we just hopelessly contradictory in the way we apply it? Do we just pick and choose the parts that make the most sense to us and the parts that maybe in our culture don't seem to make a whole lot of sense? We just leave those out. Or or maybe a better way to ask the question is if somebody, a friend comes to you and they open their Bible and they go to Leviticus 18 or, or so about and they start to point out some of these things and they go, it says right here, you should stone someone when they do this. What do I do with that? Here's my question. What would your answer be? What would you say? Are we just kind of hopelessly just picking the things that we like and leaving things out? Or do, as we say, and we say here regularly in this church, that we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's all true and it's all profitable. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the book of Leviticus and those things that are there? And so what I would say to you today is there is a cogent answer. There's a reasonable answer of why we don't stone people when they commit adultery today. There is a reasonable answer in the way the Bible unfolds. And what I've been saying as we looked at Genesis and Exodus and now Leviticus today is in order to get that, to understand that, we need to see the big picture of what God was doing, the storyline that runs through the whole of the Bible. But we also need to see how it comes and finds its ends in Jesus or it doesn't make sense. If we don't see that, we're left with, man, this is just crazy. You pick this and you leave this out and you obey this, but you don't obey that. And so I want us to think about that today as we look through Leviticus. And so we have to have that big picture storyline or none of this makes sense. And so what we've been doing, if you've been with us, we looked at Genesis two weeks ago and Exodus last week. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, we're now in Leviticus. And so let me just give you a real quick summary of what we've looked at in Genesis and Exodus to this point. Genesis, God creates all things. He makes all people in his image after his likeness. We are made to, to know and love him, to center our lives around him, to love God, to love people, to care for his creation. And what happens almost immediately in Genesis chapter three is that man rebels and decides that we can on our own uh, identify ourselves by ourselves. We said, we don't need you, God, to tell us what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. We can do this ourselves. And so we take that. And what happens and we see unfold in Genesis 4 through 11 is that sin enters the world and the disarray and the futility and the struggle and everything that goes with it. But right there at the beginning, God says he's going to fix this problem. He makes a promise to the very first people. I'm going to send one through your seed that is going to bless the world, that is going to make things right. That's in Genesis 3:15, And then we follow that promise all the way through Genesis. It picks up in chapter 12 with Abraham and his family. God says, you're the seed that I'm going to use to do this. <clears throat> he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, give you tons of descendants, and I'm going to bless the world through your people. And we follow that through the book of Genesis. And that's just a, a kind of fledgling promise at the end of Genesis. The beginning of Exodus, we jump ahead 400 years. It's now a couple million people that have come from Abraham and God begins to shape them into a nation known as the Israelites. He saves them from slavery in Egypt and he takes them out into the wilderness. He gives them his commandments and how they will worship him and the plans for a tabernacle or a temple. And that's what we see in Exodus. But the problem is God saves them. He brings them out. He says, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to do this to the world. And they immediately screw it up big time. 
Within a month, they've already blown it. And we get this this struggle that's here is that God has saved these people and he's brought them out. And remember, he saved them first and then gave them the law and then they immediately blow it. And we get to the end of Exodus and they've built this tabernacle, this tent, which is a movable temple in which God is going to dwell with them. And we get to the very end of Exodus and it says that God's glory filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. God gives them all this instruction of how he can be near them and you get to the end and no one can go in. And it's this problem, a sinful people and a holy, perfect God. And how do they coexist? That brings us to the book of Leviticus. And God's going to teach them what it looks like for a sinful people to approach a holy righteous God. And so as we begin to read through and we're going to what I'm going to do is give you just an overview of the book of Leviticus very quickly. But as we do that, I want to stop and point out a couple keys to understanding the book of Leviticus that without it, if we don't have some understanding of some of these things, namely sacrifices and God's holiness, it doesn't make any sense at all. I just say that to you. If you go and you read through Bible in the year plan and you get to Leviticus chapter like three and four and five and all this stuff and blood and animals and sacrifices and burning their entrails, you're like, what in the world? And so there's some keys to understanding that. So that's what we're going to do first. But then secondly, what is God teaching them and then us now through that? And then lastly, how does it find its ends in Jesus, which will go back and answer some of those questions. Are we inconsistent in the way we look at the Bible or does when we see the way it comes to fullness in Jesus, it actually makes sense out of the way that we interpret and look at Leviticus today. All right. So with that, let's look at Leviticus together. If you want to turn there, it's the third book of the Bible. We're going to hit on a couple verses, but we're going to move pretty quickly through it as we go. And so Leviticus chapter one says the Lord called to Moses. This is one one and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And so right from the beginning, what we see is God speaks to Moses from the tent. Moses is not in the tent. He still can't go in because God's glory is dwelling there. And in their sinfulness, they cannot just walk into God's presence. And so there's this disconnect there. And so God speaks to him from the tent. Moses is not in there and he begins to tell him how they're to make sacrifices. And what unfolds in Leviticus in chapters one through seven is it's going to tell you all about these different sacrifices and the way that you bring these animals. And it's going to give you great detail on how they're killed and how you drain the blood and how you burn their bodies and how you do all this stuff. And for seven chapters, it's going to be great detail of this. And this is where I say when you start to read Leviticus and you get into it, there's a lot of like, okay, what's happening here? And so he starts to unfold this. And as you read those first few chapters, you get there's some different kinds of sacrifices. There's grain and fellowship sacrifices, which we could summarize in this way. It means thank you. Thanking God for his provision and who he is. And it's just coming a thankfulness to who God is. But then it talks about sacrifices of burnt offerings of purification and restitution. And when you start to read those, it's when you recognize that you have sinned and you come before God and you say you're sorry and you ask for forgiveness. That's a simple way to summarize the sacrifices. 
And so what we could say is with these first seven chapters is it's almost like uh, the technical manual for how the tabernacle will work. How you will come into worship and the sacrifices you will make and the way you will do it. Right. So Leviticus chapter five, verse four says this. If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath or does anything, whether good or evil, in any manner, one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it. But when they learn of it and they realize the guilt, when anyone becomes aware they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. And as a penalty for their sin, they have committed. They must bring to the Lord a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Right. So when they recognize, when you recognize you had sinned in some way, you would come and you'd bring this animal with you to make this sacrifice. Now, it still brings the question, why? Right. I don't know about you. I've never been in any kind of worship service or any kind of church where there's been live animal sacrifices. Maybe you have. Maybe you've gone around the world or you've been in different places. I've never seen that. It's completely foreign to me. And so when I read this and I start to see that, it begs the question of like, what in the world? Why? And so we need to a key to understanding Leviticus is at least to have some background about what is happening with animal sacrifice and why God was asking them to do this. And so when you say that, when you bring this animal to the to the worship, to the tabernacle, to the temple where the priests would be there to to facilitate this and you lay your hands on this animal for a sin offering. What you were saying is that I deserve death. In my sin, I deserve death. We get that in Genesis chapter three. Actually, it goes back to chapter two As God creates everything. He said, trust me. That was the only rule. Here's the way I've set up the world. Trust me in this. He says, if you rebel, if you eat from the tree that I've told you not to eat from, which was just a, a picture of, of making a decision apart from God and doing it on your own. He says, if you do that, you will surely die. Right? Or, or Paul will say in Romans, the wages of sin is death. Death enters because of sin. And so when they would bring that animal, they would lay their hands on the animal and they would say, because of my sin, I deserve to die. And it's only by God's grace that I'm still alive And so God is allowing this animal to cover my sins, right? That's what atonement means, to cover over. And so it was a sacrifice that would take my place. I deserve to die, but this animal is taking my place. And so they would cut its throat and they would begin to let the blood drain out. Now, the whole blood thing's weird to us. If we're honest, right? You read it and blood and animal and all kinds of weird stuff that's happening here. Blood was representative of life. You remove the blood from any living creature and they cease to live. You can't live without blood. And they knew that. And that's symbolically what it meant. And so as the blood would come out, they were saying that this blood is covering my sin. That's what atonement means. And so God is allowing this animal to take my place. And so this is important for us to consider. It is only by God's grace that when we sin that we don't drop dead in the moment. God defers that he allows us in that. And so he allows these animals to take their place. And so what you have for seven chapters is telling you in great detail how to do that. The manual of how that works. But it doesn't make any sense if we don't understand the blood part and why the animals and why the sacrifice. But that's chapters one through seven. You get to eight, nine and ten and it tells you details about the priesthood, those that would facilitate all this and the ways that they would go about it. 
The priest was the go-between between the people and God. They came from the tribe of Levi. It's one of uh, Israel or Jacob's 12 sons. That tribe is set apart to be the priests. Uh, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, was the first priest and then his sons and his family. And what you get in those chapters is they're supposed to dress a certain way. They're supposed to wash a certain way. They're supposed to do all these things the way God has laid it out for them to do it. And if they don't, and if they walk right into God's presence haphazardly, they can be struck dead. And actually that happens in chapter 10. Two of Aaron's sons just kind of go in and do whatever they feel like doing kind of in the moment there. And God strikes them dead. And again, you can read those chapters and you can read what they're wearing and what's happening there and go, this is kind of weird. But the key to understanding here, like the sacrifices with the priesthood and what they wear and how they approach God, is this idea that goes all the way through the book of Leviticus. God is holy. Now, when we say holy, we get all kinds of different ideas of what, about what that means. Holy simply means other. Uh, separate from God is holy in this sense. If you think about it, you can probably come up with the ways that God is other than us. God is the creator of all things. We exist because God says so. It doesn't work the other way around. God holds things together by the word of his power. We do not do that. He is utterly different other than us. He's holy. God is perfect in every way without sin. We are sinful. And so what God was teaching in the priesthood and through this is that he is holy and perfect and you don't just waltz into his presence as a sinful, broken person. That we cannot come to him in that way. And so there were all these steps that the priests would go through and washing and clothes and different things and the way they would do it. And then you get to chapters 11 through 15 and talks about ritual purity to come to worship and as if it's not weird enough at the beginning, this is probably the weirdest part. There's all the stuff about being clean and unclean and ritually pure and ritually unpure. And you start to read all this and you think, what in the world? It is stuff like you can't touch a dead animal. Right? You, you can't eat pork or you're now unclean. Right? You, you can't touch a dead body. You can't touch a dead animal. You can't touch uh, certain bodily fluids. You can't have a skin disease. All these things that if we're going on in your life or you touch or you're a part of, you then couldn't come to the tabernacle for worship. You couldn't bring your sacrifice. And you read that and you go, it's kind of weird. Right? And the thing that I want you to see is we talk about clean and unclean and the laws that are there. And it's important for us to see that most of the stuff that they're talking about, it's not sinful. You were ritually unclean if you had just had a baby. For a season, you couldn't come. You had to do some things and go through some washings and wait a certain amount of time and then you could come. There's nothing sinful with having a child. In fact, that's a good gift that God gives us. Or touching a dead body. If someone in your family dies and they're physically having to move the body, you're now unclean. Nothing sinful about that. So what was going on that God would put all these things in place that you couldn't enter into worship when you had done this, right? Like you think about it in today's terms, and that's what we often do when we read this. And it seems really strange, right? Like, like you couldn't swing by Big D's and have a barbecue sandwich and then come to worship because you just ate pork, right? When we say that, we go, oh, yeah, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Or it seems that way. But here's what I think God was doing in all of this. All these things that he talks about that make you unclean, 
were associated with mortality and with loss of life. And they were things that you saw in creation that had been changed or distorted or were struggling because of sin entering the world. And so now you've touched things that are unclean because of sin. And if you're going to come into God's presence, the one who is perfectly holy, you do not come in this way. God was going to great lengths to teach them what a holy God was like. And it may seem kind of crazy to us, but it was the way in which he was uh, showing a sinful people how you approach a holy, righteous God. And so that's the picture that we have in verse or chapters one or 11 through 15. Chapter 16 and 17 is what we call the Day of Atonement. Now, sacrifices were going on all throughout the year at this, this tabernacle and this tent and how they came. And as it was going on, they were making sacrifices daily and there was bloodshed every day. And it would all stop on this Day of Atonement one time a year. And the priests would make sacrifice on behalf of the people. It was like a catch-all, anything that they had missed throughout the year. And so the priest would come and he would make a sacrifice and he would take uh, two goats and the first one he would lay his hands on and he'd confess the sins of the people and he would kill the animal like he normally would and he would sprinkle the blood and he'd go through all the same thing he would go through uh, the rest of the year. And this was the, the, the day of atonement and so everyone would kind of stop and you can imagine what it would be like in this encampment. Everything stops and the normal stuff that's going on and the tons and tons of sacrifices. And it's just this one. It's just this time like this. Right. And so uh, at that time they would do that. But then he would take a second goat and he would bring it and he'd confess the sins again of the people and he would lay his hands on them. But instead of sacrificing the animal, someone would take it and they would be set apart for this job and they would lead the animal out of the camp and take it way out in the desert and they'd let it go. That was known as the scapegoat. And symbolically, it was saying, here is the sins of the people and it is being removed from God. It is being removed from you that God has done this for you and your sins are removed. And it'd be a celebration of look what God has done. We can dwell in his presence because God has dealt with our sin through this sacrifice. And they would do that once a year, every year. And it was the catch all of anything that they had missed. And so if you summarize the first half of the book. It's how a sinful people come to God in worship and it culminates with this day of atonement. And this is how they can be in his presence. And all of these things are pointing to how God is holy and the people are not. If you were to do big overview of the book of Leviticus, and we did this a couple of weeks, the last couple of weeks, I'll tell you again, when you walk out the doors today, straight ahead on the table is a is a visual representation of the outline of Leviticus that will help you hold all this together. And so if you want that, it's there. Please take it. That's what it's there for. But when you look at it, the first half is how you come into God's presence. Right in the middle is this day of atonement of how God removes their sin. And then the rest of it, the rest of the book is then how you live in his presence. 18, 19 and 20 are moral laws about moral purity, along with the punishments if you don't keep them. And I want this is an important point to point out. Israel at this point was being brought in to be a nation to show the world what God was like. They were a sovereign nation with God as their king. And so there were there were uh, penalties that went with their sin. They were a nation. They could do that. Right. And so when you see that there's here's what God says and then here's the penalty of it. 
And so you see that part 18, 19 and 20 in verses 20 or chapter 21 and 22 is the qualifications morally for the priesthood. 23 through 25 is the feasts and celebrations they would keep throughout the year, including Passover and Day of Atonement. There were five others. There were seven that they did every year. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness, and they were supposed to do that. And this is what it looked like for his people. Remember what he said in Exodus. Not only was he doing this for them to understand what he was like, but they were there to be a nation of priests to show the world what God is like. And so to have these celebrations was showing, look at what God has done in his faithfulness. And then the last two chapters of Leviticus is Moses reminding them and exhorting them to keep these things. He says there'll be great blessing if you do, and there's going to be struggle and hardship and promise problems if you don't. And that's the end of the book of Leviticus. And it lays all of this out. And so here's what I want us to consider for just a minute. What is God teaching them and us when you read this really weird book that's really different than anything we're used to in our culture? And the first thing I would say to you is that God is showing that he is holy and he is perfect and we are not. And he goes to great lengths to show them that. From the ritual cleanliness and the way that they wash and the way they approach and the way they come to him. He was reiterating over and over and over how utterly holy God is. He is different than we are. He is not us. We like to put God on our terms and stand over him like he answers to us, but that is not the truth. And so God was showing them that he is holy. But the second thing I want you to think about, and maybe you haven't thought about this with the book of Leviticus. Uh, I read Leviticus this week more than I think I ever have in any short period of time in my life. Right. I read this book three times this week. And in one time I listened to it. Right. Like the audible Bible. That's like the dramatic Bible. Have you ever read those before? You hear like background noises and stuff. It's kind of cool when you listen to it. But what it was is I was listening to it the other day was you hear animals in the background and you hear fire and you hear the way they were doing the sacrifices. And it helps you visualize what was happening. And I started to listen to that and I was thinking about it and thinking about all the details that God gives them about how they sacrifice and how they drain the blood and how they approach him and how the priests would do this and how they would kill the animals and the bloodshed, so much bloodshed when you think about it in that book. And as I read that and as I thought about it, and I was suddenly overwhelmed that not only is God teaching them that he's holy He's teaching them that he's gracious and he desperately wants to have a relationship with a sinful people. He went to all of this problem and detail and all of this stuff to show them that I want to be near you. And this is the way you approach me. And he shows them over and over and over what that looks like. And I was overwhelmed. I don't know that I'd ever seen it quite like this. The grace of God in the book of Leviticus. That he was pointing to how desperately we need him. And what great lengths he goes to to be near us. But then the last thing I say is when you think about what he's teaching in that is he's not only teaching them that he's holy. He's not only showing his graciousness and what he's doing to be near them. But he's also beginning to show them what it looks like to love God and put him forward as first. So that they could show the people around them what God was like. To actually follow and love and see God for who he is, to obey him in the ways that he's called us to. You may or may not know this, 
but the world that the Israelites were living in at this time. The land that they're going to take, that God's going to give them after the book of Deuteronomy, they're going to go in and take the land. The people that were surrounding them were so barbaric that it's hard for us to even get our head around. Child sacrifice was a normal part of their worship. And so when God says, I want you to be set apart and I want you to be different and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself and I want you to take care of one another and I want you to take care of the poor and I want you to love the sojourners that come into your. He was saying something so radical for that culture. So incredibly other. He says, you're going to be holy because I am holy. You're going to be so set apart and different. You're going to show people a new way in which to live. And you see God's love and grace, not just for the people of Israel, but their neighbors around them. And so God was calling them into this. But then I want you to think, too, as we end here, how this the story connects to the big story of the Bible. Right? How all of this kind of comes together and makes sense if we place it in the big story. So God's saying he's going to bring uh, through Abraham's descendants. He's going to make them into a great nation that's going to bless the world through his seed. And he's beginning to do that by making them into this nation. There's a great number of descendants. They're being crafted kind of into a nation together to show the world what God's like. They were going to be a blessing because they were going to show what it looks like to worship God and to love one another and to do the things that God called them. So you see him starting to do that. But there's something that happens as God lays all this out for them and they celebrate this year after year. Right? Day of Atonement, Passover, all these festivals, uh, offerings and sacrifices day after day after day, bloodshed after bloodshed. And what was happening? God was showing them their sinfulness and his holiness over and over. But as they did, there was this constant tension. Right? Every year they would celebrate the Day of Atonement. And they would see their sins be taken away and the people would celebrate. Look at what God's done. And then they'd wake up the next day and they would sin and they'd go to the temple and they'd make a sacrifice and blood would be shed and they would do it all over again, over and over and over again. And this tension builds throughout all of the Old Testament that they can't do it and they continue to make mistakes and they continue to blow it. And they continue to worship the, the idols of their neighbors and they continue not to be the light that God called them to be. Until finally, Jesus comes and he begins to change all of it. He becomes the fulfillment of everything that God was doing. So if you would, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter nine for just a second? We're going to end there this morning. If you're using the pew Bible, the solid colored ones, it's 583. If you've got the blue and white one, it's on page 651. But in Hebrews, if you were to summarize the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is simply this. Jesus is better than everything that God was doing in the Old Testament. That's what it says. I mean, that's the whole of the book. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than the temple. He's better. He's better than all of it. And, and I would just encourage you as I was reading this this week and spending so much time in Leviticus. I think a really neat devotional reading might be reading the book of Leviticus and Hebrews together and seeing how Jesus comes and it's the fruition of all of this. But pick up with me in chapter nine and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works and serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus comes and makes a sacrifice that ends all sacrifices because it wasn't the blood of the animal. It was the blood of himself, the perfect, sinless God man. Or look at chapter 10 and pick up in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you hear what he says? Has perfected for all time. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us saying, this is the covenant I will make for them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you hear what he's saying? The day of atonement, when they took that goat out and you saw it go out, you went, they're all gone. But then you woke up the next day and you sinned again. You're like, oh, I have to do this again. But Hebrews says Jesus has come and made the sacrifice once and for all. Right? Just as they took the goat outside the gates and they let it go, Jesus was taken outside the gates and he was crucified outside alone. Is everyone scattered and left him? And God allowed him to take the sins of all. But because of his perfect sacrifice, it's done. And it says, not just since today, or yesterday, or tomorrow, but all of them. Every single one. Done. He's finished it. So we don't have to go back to the temple. We don't have to go back in and make sacrifices over and over and over again. And I want you to think about what God was doing to those people at that time and the way he's written it. For 2000 years, he had them do that so that when Jesus came, he would say, do you see how all of this was pointing to what I've been planning from the beginning of the foundations of the world? It was all there to point to Jesus and what he's done. And so we don't go in continually, but we rest in what Jesus has done for us. And this incredible thing happens. You no longer go to the temple to make your sacrifices so you can see God from afar. The holy of holies where God's presence dwells is no longer in a tent or a building, but it is in you. Paul says you are now the very temple of God and the spirit dwells in you. So I want to go back to how we see the Bible. 
What does that mean about purity and impure and unpure and how you you don't approach God in that way anymore? You are made clean because of what Jesus has done. You're not made unclean by touching pork. You're made clean because of what Jesus has done. And so all of those ritual laws that God put into practice for good reason to teach those people, they no longer apply because Jesus has finished it. We are not hopelessly contradicting ourselves in the Bible. We're seeing how it has been fulfilled in Christ. And so those cleanliness laws don't apply to us anymore. We don't approach God in the temple in that way with our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the temple. He's every single bit of it. And so when people go, but you don't follow that, go, yes, we do. Jesus has finished it. But the same is true as you get to the the punishments in the rest of the book. Right? The moral law, and there's those things there, and the punishments of if you don't do this, then this is the punishment. We're not a sovereign nation. We're not a theocracy with God over us that then makes those punishments. Israel no longer exists in that way with God as the theocracy, so that no longer exists. We're not being inconsistent. The moral law still remains. God doesn't change. The things that he says are right are still right, and the things he says are wrong are still wrong. But we don't be punished in that way. Jesus has taken all of it for us, and we can rest in that. Do you see that? And so when people make that charge, you're hopelessly inconsistent in the way you read the Bible. No. The whole of the Bible is pointing to Jesus and what he's done and what he's finished for us, and we get to rest in that. And so I just encourage you that Leviticus is a beautiful, wonderful book, as weird as it is, because it points us to the fullness of God's holiness and what he's done for us in Jesus. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. We thank you that as we gather here today, that we're not gathering to bring sacrifices and animals and blood and all those things, but it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that you've dealt not only with our sins in the past and in the present but in the future and all of it we can rest that you made the sacrifice once and for all and so we pray that we would see our identity in you that we would rest in you and what you've done for us we thank you we pray all of this in jesus precious name amen